Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by... Dr. Jimmy Turner, your guide to practical leadership at drjimmyturner.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. Listening to episode 116 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about your mysterious feedback. Folks, we've had so much to say about the fascinating mysteries we've been covering that several of our recent shows have run long, but we've also received lots of great feedback from our listeners, and we didn't want to shortchange it and the fascinating issues you've raised. That's why we're devoting this special bonus episode to your mysterious feedback. And even though it's not a Friday, we're bringing you this special extra episode, and we'll have a new episode for you this Friday as usual. So what did you have to say about remote viewing, about acupuncture, about St. Thomas Aquinas and the occult, or about that daring 1971 break-in that exposed the FBI's darkest secrets? Well, that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, to begin, our first letter was sent back at the end of April, but it came by postal mail. And uh, you, you told me you didn't get it until recently. Yes, it was forwarded to me from SQPN headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. And when I got it, I was surprised to see that it was on letterhead that said it was from the grand encampment of the Knights Templar of the United States of America, Harkening back to the Knights Templar that we discussed back in episode 56. So with with some, a letter coming on letterhead from the grand encampment of the Knights Templar of the United <laughs> States, I was really curious to see what it had to say. It was from a gentleman named Devin, and here's what he wrote. Dear Mr. Aiken, I wanted simply to write you a brief letter to express my gratitude for all the many hours you've put into both Mysterious World and Catholic Answers. I have, for several years, been a listener of our local Catholic radio station, but have only very lately been made aware of your marvelous, mysterious podcast. Before I get too far ahead of myself, I am in no way connected with the Knights Templar. I am a collector of typewriters and all typewriter-related ephemera. I am also a fan of mysteries and mysterious happenings of all kinds. A fellow collector came across this fantastic letterhead and, aware of my interests, sent me some few pages. When I took it in mind to write you a letter, I knew of no better use for this paper. I hope you find it as amusing as I do. The answer is yes. <laughs> Love it. But to the point of my little letter, I have so much enjoyed your magnificent podcast over these past few weeks, devouring them two in a day sometimes. I would submit that, ironically, if I ever came into the Catholic Church, for I am a Protestant, it would be largely because of your appearances on Catholic Answers, but even more largely because of your Mysterious World podcast. What I mean to say is this. Many times I have heard you say, or at least aver on Mysterious World, that there is something you want to believe, but that you cannot believe or have not yet become convinced of. 
What this tells me is that the answers you give on Catholic Answers, with so much gentleness and generosity of spirit, can be trusted. You believe what you say, and you speak as one with authority, something I very much appreciate. So once again, thank you for the obvious work you put into your podcasts and radio appearances. I anxiously anticipate each one. Very sincerely yours, Devin Thompson. Thank you very much, Devin. That's very kind of you. And uh, like I said, I really like the letterhead. That's awesome. It had not occurred to me that the effect that you mentioned is something that would happen where talking on Mysterious World about less than conclusive evidence and or, you know, unpersuasive evidence is something that would help people build confidence when I do say, here's what the evidence indicates, like on Catholic Answers Live. But I, I, can, I can see how that works. It's not something I anticipated, but it makes sense. And, you know, even on Catholic Answers Live, I try to note where, like, there's room for a difference of opinion here and different people have different evidences that they bring forward and you can go with whatever option you think the evidence best supports. So there's that aspect on, on Catholic Answers Live as well, but very definitely here it, it's very present on Mysterious World. And a lot of times when I give the bottom line on something or give my bottom line on something, it does include a qualifier of some sort about, well, here's where the evidence is pointing, and I'd, I'd love the Cottingley Fairies to be true, but yeah, the evidence doesn't point that way. Very good. Our next bit of feedback comes from Heather C. from Maryland by email. Uh, she writes, Our whole family enjoys the podcast and many of the others on SQPN. I enjoyed the recent submission of fan art and was inspired to make my own contribution in the only medium in which I excel, yarn. Attached, please find pictures of Amagurumi Jimmy. I would love to send him in to you, but in the meantime, he'll hang out with some of my other Amigurumi efforts, Panda with a Taco, and my favorite Pinewood Derby car from my tenure as a Cub Master. My once little Cub is a Life Scout now. Please keep up the amazing shows, and I'll keep dividing my discretionary spending between being a patron and feeding my yarn habit. Thank you so much, Heather C. Uh, we appreciate your patronage and really loved the Amigurumi Jimmy that you made. For people who may not be familiar, Amigurumi is a Japanese craft where you make little dolls or figurines out of yarn. And so that's the that's the building material for these is yarn. So it's very tightly woven in a way that allows the figures to be freestanding. They're not flat. They are three-dimensional. And she made an Amigurumi Jimmy with optional cowboy hat accessory that is just awesome and and looks like me. I put it on uh, Facebook yesterday and it's already got like a couple of hundred likes and a bunch of comments and people really loved it. We'll also have a link in the further resources for this episode so that you can see Heather's marvelous craft and it's just awesome. Thank you so <laughs> much. And I now have it and it is a new treasured possession of mine. Yes, we loved seeing it. Everyone in my family loved it as well. <laughs> so let's move to our feedback on the episode we did on remote viewing, the, actually two episodes. The first one comes from Jamie or Jaime, depending on how you pronounce it, Longa on Facebook. And they write, fantastic and informative episode as usual, gentlemen. I figured since you mentioned that you love receiving fan art, here is a fun ballpoint pen sketch I made a few years back of Jimmy. I'm a professional artist, but use my remote viewing powers, of course, to make this one. Thank you so much, Jaime. Really appreciate it. It's a really good sketch, and we'll have a link to that also so that you can see Jaime's sketch. It's very professionally done, and my compliments. And uh, Len on Facebook writes, I found 
all the sound clips in that episode distracting. A couple short ones here and there might be okay, but the amount in this episode really lowered the enjoyment of listening. Thank you for the feedback, Lynn. We really appreciate it. We're feeling out different options. We are always trying to improve the show and trying to come up with new ideas. So recently we started including sound clips and sound effects. And at the current stage, we're in an ex- sort of in an experimentation phase. And Dom and I have been talking about we we thought this one worked. We thought this could be a little better and things like that. So we're trying things out and hopefully we'll settle it into a good groove with the audio enhancements to the show. And thank you so much for your feedback and for all the listeners. We've had comments both ways about them and your feedback helps us find that good groove. Right. And this one, for example, is, a, is, is one from the other perspective. Ernest writes on Facebook, love the sound clip references, my kind of humor. Awesome. Thank you, Ernest. Steve writes by email, very interesting shows on remote viewing. However, I'm wondering about at least two examples, the roulette wheel scheme and Dom's mention of buying a lottery ticket, both of which imply that RVers might see into the future. I understood RV to be a potential spying technique of present events only. Can you clarify, please? Sure. According to the theory, remote viewing can be used to determine things about the future, but doing so is tricky because dates and things like that are left brain phenomena that involve a high potential for analytical overlay. Also, if you like try to remote view what's the closing number on the Dow Jones stock index going to be, well, it's going to be a number. And numbers are heavily vulnerable to analytical overlay because they're left brain. Analytical overlay, you may remember, is when your own consciousness typically connected with or frequently at least connected with letters and numbers and words, your own expectations and consciousness interferes with the signal you're getting. And so one of the ways that's around that is sometimes called associative remote viewing. The idea is instead of using trying to directly view letters and numbers, you use an associated object or image as a clue. So, for example, in one of the stock market uh, tests that was done, like, is the stock market going to go up or down tomorrow? What would happen is the researcher would ask the remote viewers not to view the number of the stock market, but to view what object, what physical object he will show them tomorrow. So if he shows them tomorrow a bicycle, that means that the market went up. But if he shows them an umbrella, it means the market went down. So rather than going directly for the number that's vulnerable to analytical overlay, they'd go for something more visual, like, do I see myself being presented with a bicycle or an umbrella tomorrow? And that was one of the workarounds to try to deal with that. Okay, okay. Bonnie writes by email, many, many times when I've lost an article and pray for St. Anthony's intercession, an image forms in my mind as to where it is. I've often thought that this was a miraculous instance. Maybe St. Anthony is simply using my natural ability of remote viewing to prompt me to look in a certain place. 
It's certainly possible. If remote viewing is a real ability, then God could use it, you know, in answer to prayer. And that wouldn't, in principle, be different than like when you go to the doctor and you've got an illness and you pray that the doctor will be able to use his skills to cure you. The doctor has these skills he's learned and you're asking God to help use those skills that are operating on the natural level to achieve a benefit to you. And the same thing could be true with remote viewing. If you're asking God through St. Anthony's intercession to help you find an object, if you have this remote viewing ability, if that's real, then God could help you use your natural ability to solve the issue, just like he could use a physician's natural abilities to help solve the issue. On the other hand, the image that you get, uh, the the skeptical of answer to that or the skeptical interpretation of that would be you're not remote viewing it, your memory is being prompted of where mm. you last saw it. Right. Michael writes on Facebook, both of these were great episodes. I was really expecting this to be an episode where you laid out the evidence and then debunked it easily. I was shocked to learn just how real this phenomena appears to be. It is really something when you have the former president of the American Association of Statisticians saying this is way beyond chance in the statistics. And when even the skeptic they brought in to evaluate the program is saying he's not convinced, but it warrants further research and he could change his mind. Mm -hmm. Flying Car 100 on YouTube writes, couldn't remote viewing just have been something that we said we were getting results with so that we could trick the Soviet Union into wasting money researching it? That, that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it could be and may have been at, at some stage. But the actual evidence we have, if anything, would point in the other direction because the early experiments kind of got a jump start when we learned the Soviets were putting a lot of research money into psychic functioning and we were afraid of there being a psychic gap between <laughs> us and them. So we decided we needed to start researching it, too. Les Hammer writes on uh, SQPN.com. Would a remote viewer be able to see Swiss bank account numbers and passcodes? Hypothetically, but as we mentioned, they're very vulnerable to analytical overlay, according to the theory, and thus you would either need to do a lot of error correction. And that's something we didn't really go into, but there is a procedure for cleaning up the signal. This comes from signal processing, whether it's radio signal processing or sending information over the Internet there are ways to clean up the signal by repeatedly testing it and poking it and error correcting it. And you can do the same thing, according to the theory, with remote viewing, but it requires a lot of effort to do that. So you could use error correction protocols or you could try something like associative remote viewing. But because there's because if this exists, it's a fairly weak natural sense there you're you're still probably going to have to do a lot of error correction okay uh and i'm gonna try to say this <laughs> correctly and kumaranayagam i hope you said that right on sqpn.com writes i remember those articles in kids magazines in the 70s is esp real anything to get kids interested in reading jimmy's conclusion likening it to our senses of taste and smell puts it in a reasonable perspective 
Thank you. I hadn't, I don't recall seeing anybody else use that analogy, but it seemed like an obvious one to me that, yes, we do have real senses of taste and smell, but they're not very precise and they are error prone and, um, you know, compared to like a dog's sense of smell. And so we shouldn't dismiss the possibility of an additional human sense like remote viewing simply on the grounds that it has a, a high error rate because we've already got other senses we know to exist that have that. Mm -hmm. Binary 4826 on YouTube says. Yeah. And I should mention binary 4826 is his, his name is really a string of ones and zeros on YouTube, <laughs> but it's so long. I thought I'd go with the shorter. So it's the binary equivalent of 4826. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, anyway, uh, the, the binary of 4826 writes, I believe there is a moral principle that warning, I'm not being precise and technical here, that if we do not know if something is immoral, we should not do it, like erring on the side of caution. So it would seem to me that unless we had a moral certitude that it was a natural phenomena and not, say, demons enabling them for nefarious purposes, we should avoid it. Is this correct, Mr. Aiken? And what's more, how can we determine to a moral certitude its source? So this is actually something that Catholic moral theologians, not with remote viewing, but in general, the principles have been discussing for hundreds of years. And it's actually fairly well developed in Catholic moral theology. There are sort of two extremes. There's a spectrum of views. And the two extremes on the spectrum, on the one hand, there's a position that's called rigorism, also sometimes called Tutsierism. And it says that if you have two options, one of which is more safe and one of which is less safe. So in this case, doing nothing presumably would be more safe and trying remote viewing would be less safe. If you have two options, one of, the, one of which is less safe than the other, then you can only do the less safe if it is the most probable opinion to be correct. So you could only undertake less safety if you have very high confidence that you're right. So that's what rigorism says. At the other end of the spectrum is a position called laxism. And laxism says, no, you can do the less safe option, even if it's likely wrong, as long as it's slightly probable to be right. And rigorism and laxism have both been widely dismissed by Catholic moral theologians, and there are even magisterial documents that appear to reject rigorism and laxism. So the answer, and where most Catholic moral theologians have focused, is somewhere between those two. So you don't need overwhelming probability that you're right in order to undertake risk, but merely a teeny tiny slight probability of being right also isn't enough to undertake risk. The middle positions, classically, there are three of them. One of them is called probabiliorism, and that Eor in it tells it's Latin that means the most. So probabiliorism is you can do the less safe thing only if it's more probable or more safe. I should should have said it's more probable. So probabiliorism, it it you can do the less one if it's more probable than the safe option to be right. Opposite probabiliorism is what's called probabilism. And probabilism says that you can do the less safe thing if it's solidly probable. 
So it has to be not just a slight probability, but a solid probability, even if the more safe one, the more safe option is somewhat more probable. So this is uh, in probabilism. You can do the less safe thing if it's got a solid probability, even if it's probably not correct. Then smack dab in the middle, you have equiprobabilism. And as you would expect based on the name, equiprobabilism says you can do the less safe thing if it's approximately equal. There's the equa in equiprobabilism. If it's approximately equally probable with the safe option. And so those have been discussed for several centuries. A particular thinker who is very famous for this is St. Alphonsus Liguri, who he was born in 1696 and he died in 1787. So he's basically a, a thinker in the 18th century. And he did a lot of work on moral theology. Now, here in English, people are familiar with some of his devotional literature, like his preparation for death or his glories of Mary or things like that. But what he's really famous for in ecclesiastical circles is not his devotional stuff. It's his moral theology. And that's why he's a doctor of the church. It was because of his moral theology that he got named a doctor of the church. And he explored all three of these middle positions. He kind of started out as a probabiliorist, and then he shifted to just probabilism. And then according to most accounts, although not all, he eventually settled on equiprobabilism. And you still find advocates of these different positions today, these middle theories. Also, there's arisen a new one called compensationalism. And compensationalism says that you must compensate for additional factors besides the probability of being correct. Like, what are the costs and benefits to be achieved by pursuing something? So, for example, if you're not sure that in our remote viewing example, exploring remote viewing would be the less safe option from one perspective compared to not exploring it. But if you have reason to believe that the Soviets have made a huge breakthrough here and they're going to be stealing all of our secrets, that's a factor that you need to take into account, too, and could justify some additional risk. And so even if all things being equal, you might say, ah, let's pass on this research. If there's an urgent need for the research, that needs to be taken into account and can justify assuming some additional risk. My personal view, even though I haven't read enough compensationalist writings to say I agree with the way they're formulating it, my personal sense is that something like compensationalism is going to end up being true, that you do need to account for, you know, urgent situations and things like that in assessing how much risk is reasonable in a given situation. And so I would say that you also have a um, I, I don't think researching this is for everybody because there is risk involved. But I think God gave us the gift of reason to try to figure out nature, even if that involves some risk. And we accept risk in other kinds of research, and it's not wrong in principle to accept some degree of risk here. You want to minimize that risk. You want to do it in ways that, like with other scientific research, you want to minimize the risk to the experimental subjects and to the researchers. 
But in principle, we're willing to accept risk in other areas, and it's not wrong in principle to accept research or to accept some degree of risk in researching things like this. Okay. Yeah. So if we if we adhered to that, we'd never look into things that were un, that were currently unknown and undiscovered. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, so great. That's our uh, feedback that we got on remote viewing, and certainly we we will. Look for more if you have any more questions on it, and we'll be revisiting remote viewing in future episodes. So we have some really interesting things planned for that, uh, including some very soon. Let's move on to our next bit of feedback. This comes on our episode on acupuncture. Yeah, I wanted to mention we got several listeners commented with their experiences on acupuncture and how it helped them or their relatives. We won't be going through all of those, but I just wanted to acknowledge that multiple people sent in their acupuncture helped me stories. And so I want to validate that and affirm that and whatever the reason it was that it helped, I'm glad it did. So our first feedback comes from Philip, who sent an email that said, uh, great show and love it. Here are my thoughts on acupuncture. I quit smoking using a method called laser technology, which was described as acupuncture using a soft laser. I was skeptical at first and put off by the cost, but the first three months of not smoking paid for the procedure. Fifteen years to date without a smoke and don't plan on going back. I don't know if it was placebo, but I know God used this procedure to help me kick the deadly habit. And I'm glad you were able to achieve your goals. That's great. Uh, Peter sends an email. He says, one thing I was hoping you would cover is what is called dry needling. It's quite a common practice within the physiotherapy repertoire of techniques. I get regular physiotherapy when I injure myself. It doesn't have any of the yin yang or qi or meridian lines or any of the other traditional Chinese medicine pseudoscience. My experience is limited, but I have found that when I had a muscular problem resulting from my training, Dry needling in the area will will cause spasming in the muscle, sometimes quite painfully, until it finally releases. It doesn't seem to fall into a placebo effect category, at least not as obviously as acupuncture, but I'd be very interested in what you think. Well, I don't see why it wouldn't work in principle. The fact it's getting away from the meridians and the scientifically unverifiable theories connected with them is reasonable. I think it it likely could work based on one of the principles that we talked about in the episode, which was when you poke the thing that hurts, it can get better. That's why we want to poke things that hurt. And there are a number of mechanisms that can cause that to happen. Counter stimulation is one of them, but also just um, stimulating muscles and until they relax and help work out tensions is another one. And that could easily be playing a role here. Okay. Rafa wrote uh, in a comment on Facebook, great show. I listen from Guadalajara, Mexico. I'd love to hear your, your opinion from both the reason and faith perspectives about homeopathy. So homeopathy is something we'll definitely be talking about in future episodes. To give you a little preview, now the term homeopathy is used in different senses, but its original historical meaning, sometimes today it's just used as a marketing gimmick. It's what you're, what's advertised as homeopathy is not really homeopathy. But historically, homeopathy involves dilution, like putting a substance in water that is supposed to have an effect on a particular condition that you have, in fact, even causing that condition in sufficient dose, but then you dilute repeatedly the water. 
So it's an extreme dilution and the and it's so extreme that typically there would be no molecules left of the original substance in the water. Nevertheless, homeopathists homeopathists will say if you take this this diluted solution, it will help with your problem. Kind of on the theory that you get a little bit of a poison, it helps stimulate your system to fight it, or you get a little bit of a a germ and your it'll stimulate your system to fight it off. And so that's how homeopathy is often thought to work. I'm not going to say always. The question is, if you've really diluted it, the water so much that there are no molecules of the original substance left, how on earth does this water help you? Because there's none of the substance left. Well, a number of years ago, I was talking with a primary care physician and cardiologist here in California. And he said, we can't really scientifically verify this, but there may be, or we have no theory to account for it, but maybe, just a maybe, there's some kind of memory that the water has of what used to be put into it. Now, that idea is interesting, but it's also something we don't have scientific evidence for. Or do we? There is a book called 13 Things That Don't Make Sense, The Most Baffling Scientific Mysteries of Our Time by Michael Brooks. And he's got a chapter on homeopathy in it. And he talks about, well, here's why this should not work. And here's why in a lot of cases it doesn't work. But there is a small residue of studies that suggest it might work in some circumstances. There's some deviation from what you would expect by random chance. It's slight, but according to some studies, it's there. So that's why it's one of the 13 things that don't make sense. Having said that, research is always provisional, and a lot of research is just flat wrong, a subject we're going to be talking about in future episodes. In fact, we already talked about it a little in the acupuncture episode, where a lot of the Chinese research appear on acupuncture appears to just be cooked as opposed to research done in other parts of the world. And so I don't know if these homeopathy studies are right or not. Personally, I'm skeptical of homeopathy, but I've got an open mind and I'm going to continue looking into it. And at some point we'll have an, an episode on it for you. Excellent. Kelly writes on Facebook, this was an interesting episode. I've always been skeptical of acupuncture, mainly because its proponents tend to give it the ability to cure anything. It reminds me of those health tonics that made claims to cure any disease that were popular in the 19th century. Yeah, and indeed, any time you see something that's claimed to cure everything, it's probably a good sign that it really cures nothing or... (laughs) at least doesn't cure nearly the number of things that are advertised. As 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 they said in the musical Singing in the Rain, it's just pure publicity. <laughs> Francis Lee writes on YouTube, I love Jimmy not only for the topics he chooses to chooses to discuss, I respect him as a fellow Catholic. He's my favorite apologist. I always refer <laughs> I always refer to him when I look something up regarding my faith. I also value his unbiased opinions and views. With that being said, this topic kind of had me conflicted, as I just don't know which way to lean. I am currently, for the last five or so years, after marrying a man from Beijing, a student of Chinese culture and language. 
My husband happens to know quite no. a <laughs> My husband happens to know quite a bit about this topic in particular due to his profession. My experiences with traditional Chinese medicine have been positive ones. I have mainly dealt with acupressure as opposed to acupuncture, and it has helped me a great deal so far. To be fair, though, I don't know if it's a combination of the environment, my mental state at the time, and the massage itself, or if it really helps. Nonetheless, it has helped more than traditional style massage, especially for my migraines. I often wonder if there's a more scientific way to measure the results, if there would be positive outcomes each time and more people would try it, or if it would be debunked altogether. Either way, thanks for discussing this topic, and regardless, you still brought attention to acupuncture and TCM, which I think is pretty cool. Thank you, Francis. We appreciate it. And I, you know, I know what it's like to feel like the evidence kind of points in both ways. I don't dismiss the idea that acupuncture may have some therapeutic effect. There is at least slight evidence that it could help with uh, pain relief in some situations and maybe a few other things. The In terms of the best scientific evidence or evaluations of the scientific evidence, the Cochrane studies are the best that I think we presently have available. But, you know, even beyond what intrinsic therapeutic effect it may have, it can have other effects. As you mentioned, the environment and the mental state and the massage and all those things can play a role too. XSC3 on YouTube writes, Very interesting podcast. I've listened to a few episodes now, and it's very well done. I like the two-parters that go into more detail and include feedback too. I'm a longtime listener of Brian Dunning's Skeptoid podcasts, and before that I listened to Coast to Coast AM, Art Bell, on occasion. It's nice to hear the faith perspective, too. Great job, and nice to see this other side of your interest, Mr. Aiken, and Dom, too. Thanks. Thank you, XSC3. I've also listened to Skeptoid and definitely have listened to Art Bell. God rest his soul. And glad to have you aboard. Mark writes via email, I do have a question about acupuncture. In the podcast, you mentioned that there were no treatments that acupuncture was not approved for. That made me wonder, did you find any support for acupuncture treating trypanophobia? And this is an awesome question because trypanophobia is one condition that acupuncture absolutely might treat. I'm I'm tempted to just let people look up what trypanophobia <laughs> is for themselves, but I'll go ahead and spoil it just so I don't leave people hanging. Trypanophobia is fear of needles. <laughs> and so based on the principles in cognitive behavioral therapy of exposing you to your fear and letting you get over it based on exposure and uh, it's, it's called ex, uh, exposure and response prevention therapy or just exposure therapy. Yes, absolutely. Exposing people to tiny needles as a way of helping get them over their trypanophobia. To quote young Frankenstein. It can't work! <laughs> yeah, just keep sticking with tiny needles until they're not afraid of them anymore. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's move on to feedback from our episodes on St. Thomas Aquinas and the occult. Jimmy, uh, you got some listeners answering your call for help. Yeah. So we one of the things we talked about is there are different accounts of 
apparently supernatural things that may have happened to Aquinas during his life. But the accounts don't all agree with each other, and it's hard to know. They, they're typically just summaries, and sometimes they're summaries in non-scholarly works. And so uh, I was hoping that people would maybe be able to recommend like a scholarly biography that could help us get the original sources in the original Latin so we could see what they say. And uh, people did write in, they acknowledged that, yeah, it's really hard to get detailed biographies of Aquinas because everyone's focused on his thought not on his life. So there aren't that many that have been written, but several people did suggest some options. So thank you very much for that. So our first bit of feedback comes from Father Paul, who sent an email and he said, I just listened to your latest episode on St. Thomas Aquinas and the occult and really enjoyed it. I especially appreciated Jimmy's explanation about the difference between doctrine and theology. Many people get confused about what counts as official church teaching versus what is merely a theory that Catholics are free to adopt or not. As someone who has a license in dogmatic theology from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome, I found Jimmy's explanations about this point to be outstanding. You might even say angelic. Thanks for your great work. I will be increasing my monthly donation in Thanksgiving for your consistently great work. Awesome. Thank you so much, Father Paul. And for people who may not be familiar, St. Thomas Aquinas is sometimes called the angelic doctor or the angelic teacher. And so that's explains the angelic reference there. Thank you very much. I actually wrote a book on the subject of church teaching and how to figure out exactly what it is and distinguish it from mere theological opinion. Uh, the book is called Teaching with Authority, and we'll have a link to it in the further resources. I highly recommend it to folks. I encounter a lot of people on the internet who are claiming something is church doctrine or even infallible church doctrine when that's actually not the case. And and rather than challenge the individual cases of that I see all the time, I thought, let's do the teach a man to fish principle. And so let's write a book on how to actually figure out, is this church teaching or not? And if it is, what level of authority does it have? Because not everything's infallible just because it's church teaching. So check out Teaching with Authority. Ken wrote a comment on Facebook, another very well thought out episode. The Summa has been on my wish list for a while now, and it just moved to the top. With my background, I'm a former student of the occult. It was a genuine eye opener. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you very much. Glad you enjoyed it. And it is indeed interesting to you know look at what Aquinas had to say about occult topics. Uh, Robert comments on Facebook. So Dom has a Sicilian grandmother confirmed. I find your lack of faith disturbing. <laughs> yeah, and that's a, a reference to St. Thomas Aquinas's discussion of the evil eye. Yes, how you could put a hex on people by glaring at them maliciously, and and that's something that Sicilian grandmothers are famed for being able to do in some cases. Mm. But uh, it also is a little bit dark side. So yes, Sicilian, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I go with that. I'm a Star Wars fan. John writes via email. I just had a quick thought about some of the definitions you were using for species during your talk about Thomas's notion whether or not each angel was considered its own species or not. It's interesting that his thoughts echo the well-accepted principle in biology that different species are unable to generate offspring or at least fertile offspring, for example, as in the case with horses, donkeys, and mules. I thought it interesting that on more than one occasion you've mentioned how angels do not have procreation 
and this would certainly support the notion that each angel is its own species from a biological perspective. I'm, of course, aware of that angels are spiritual and not in nature and not physical, so the biological notion of chromosome pairing would not apply. Nonetheless, as we try and apply our terms to the known world, spiritual and physical, it may also be fair to say that our notions of species may only be echoing something that is derived in our physical world from the spiritual world. This is an interesting point that we can clarify because species to us today normally means biological species. And the question of can it reproduce is key to that. You know, if you if you get this animal together with that animal and they get busy, will they be able to have a fertile offspring or not? If the answer is yes, then by conventional reckoning, they would be the same species. So apparently humans and Vulcans are the same species as are <laughs> humans and Klingons. And Romulans um, and all kinds yeah. of... Yeah. <laughs> but in Aquinas' time, the term species was used more broadly. So species, I mean, it comes from a word that just means kind. And so any natural kind would be a species of something. And the way they articulated it was they had a kind of hierarchy between, and this is reflected in biological terminology today, but a difference between genus and species. So genus is the more broad category and species is the more narrow category. And a typical definition of a species would be its genus plus its difference, the thing that sets it off from other members of that same genus. So in the case of human beings, a common way of explaining human beings is we are a rational animal. So animal would be our genus and rational would be the difference that sets us apart from other animals. So you could say, well, the definition of the human species is a rational animal. Plato had tried another definition. Man is a featherless biped. So biped would be the genus and featherless would be the the difference. But according to the legend, anyway, somebody then plucked a chicken and uh, <laughs> and and claimed it satisfied Plato's definition of man. But these would also apply to this concept would also apply to others, other natural kinds besides living things. So like a magnet for example, would be an object like piece of metal that has the ability to attract iron. And you would also have, you'd want some kind of genus and difference definitions for like gold or rubies or things like that. They're, they're not living, they don't grow or reproduce, but they still would f have species of some kind. And in that way, you could apply it also to angels who don't reproduce. The question is, is Aquinas right that each angel is its own species, or is that not the case, which is my personal suspicion? Baltazar writes via email, Thank you so much for all your work. I greatly admire your intellectual honesty and your work. I go around promoting your podcasts and saying how good they are. Regarding this past episode on St. Thomas Aquinas, I'd like to mention three things. First, I didn't like you calling St. Thomas an eclectic. An eclectic is someone who draws from different sources without a system or a criterion ending up with contradictory opinions. St. Thomas definitely draws from a wide variety of sources, but he absolutely knows how to integrate them in a coherent manner. Second, you don't need to adhere to all of St. Thomas's tenets to consider yourself a Thomist, for example, his cosmological views. Thomism hinges around the real distinction of being and essence and the doctrine of participation. 
I understand in a brief podcast you can't go so you cannot go so much in depth, but I think it's important to clarify this if we don't want to make Thomism look like some piece of antiquity. On the contrary, its principles and its methodology have a lot to offer for problems and challenges of today's culture and contemporary thought. Finally, I don't think St. Thomas claims matter is the only principle of individuality. The essence, inasmuch as its being makes it subsistent, becomes an individual subject, that is, a suppositum. And the fact that there are classes of angels does not imply that they all have the same essence. Cats, panthers, and tigers belong to the same genus, felines, being diverse species. I don't see why we wouldn't apply the analogy to angels. So thank you very much, Baltazar. In regard to my reference to St. Thomas as an eclecticist, as St. Thomas himself likes to do, we should draw a distinction here because the there are different ways of, of understanding the term eclecticist. And if you mean that by eclecticist, a person who just takes things randomly from different places without integrating them into a coherent body of thought, you would be right. He's not an eclecticist. On the other hand, if you meant it the way I meant it, which is simply a person who draws from different sources, he is an eclecticist by that standard, and it doesn't mean he doesn't integrate his thought. One of the th and, and in fact, I meant it as a compliment to say he was an eclecticist because he was willing to genuinely listen to different schools of thought and try to find the truth in them and then pull that together into an integrated system. And that's an admirable thing. Not everybody is an eclecticist in that sense. Some people, including some Thomists, have the idea of, I just need to listen to this one school and it'll tell me what all the truth is. And so some people, contrary to Aquinas's own principles, will simply listen to Aquinas as if, okay, this is going to be the truth, and they don't draw from multiple sources. In terms of the essence of Thomism, obviously, you don't have to agree with Aquinas's cosmological views, so you don't have to agree with everything he said in order to be a Thomist. I believe we made that point in the episode. Precisely how you define Thomism is going to vary. There are different people in, like in the 20th century who called themselves Thomists who might not be considered Thomists historically, but they still identified with that tradition. Others are very much Thomists in the historical mold, and it's certainly not a relic of the past. Thomism is a vital school of Catholic thought today that has a lot of energy, and it's even become popular in non-Catholic circles. There are a lot of evangelical Thomists these days, so it's very much a living thing in philosophy and theology. In terms of the principle of individuality, I'd be very interested to see if there are other passages where uh, Aquinas acknowledges a second principle of individuality besides matter. I am not aware of any, and I haven't read about any, but if there are some and you're able to provide references, I'd love to take a look at them. Antonio Evangelisti writes on YouTube, Jimmy Aiken, the reincarnation of Thomas Aquinas. Oh, wait, you already did an episode on that. My bad. Yeah, we did an episode on that. <laughs> Don't think that one will work out. Although apparently Peter Kraft once heard me on the radio. He didn't know who I was, but he once heard me answering a question on the radio and I was apparently said something like, well, there are five responses to this and here they are. And he was like, this guy's like a living Thomas Aquinas. No, 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 no. Austin Calabat on YouTube writes, great two-parter, guys. This did raise some interesting questions in my mind. For example, what would Thomas Aquinas and the church say about reading tarot cards? In a way, tarot cards are a lot like drawing lots. It has a lot to do with random chance when drawing your cards. 
Yeah. So I can tell you what St. Thomas Aquinas would have said about them in his own day. Nothing. Because tarot cards didn't exist. Even though they have this aura of being these ancient fortune-telling things, they're not ancient at all. They don't go back that far. And originally, they developed from cards that people would use to play games. So they were not originally a fortune-telling thing. They were originally just a card game. But you're right. Because you draw cards randomly, you can use them as a kind of sortilege. And so that's how the card game transitioned into being a fortune-telling thing. In terms of how the church today might respond, well, obviously the church isn't big on on fortune-telling, but there has been some interesting discussion of the tarot, or, or at least the major arcana of the tarot deck. The major arcana is a subdivision of the tarot deck that has the famous picture cards. So like the tower and death and the fool and the hierophant and other images you may have seen, as opposed to like, you know, the seven of clubs or the seven of wands or things like that. So there was a book that was written in the 20th century by an anonymous figure, although we now know who it was, called Meditations on the Tarot. And what he was doing, he was a convert from occultism, and he was trying to use the major arcana as a way of showing the vitality of Catholic thought to people who were more into the occult. And it's not a perfect book, but that was what his goal was. And there was an afterword written by Hans Urs von Balthasar. Hans Urs von Balthasar was one of the major theologians of the 20th century. And he was a little bit of a maverick as a theologian, but he was considered good enough as a theologian that St. John Paul II appointed him as a cardinal because of his theological contributions not because he was the head of a major diocese like Paris, because he wasn't. It was because of his theological contributions. He was one of the theological cardinals. And he wrote this afterwards to afterward to Meditations on the Tarot, where he offered some reflections on it. And if you want, you can check those out. We'll have a link to Meditations on the Tarot, as well as a piece evaluating it by the late famous uh, British Catholic author Stratford Caldecott. All right. Charles 22 on YouTube writes, Back in 1995, the Lord had blessed me extremely by lifting me out of a pit. As a result, I suddenly was buying spiritual books, and I bought like a dozen on various subjects all at the same time. These came in, and I opened the package. I suddenly had this feeling to open one of the books at random. In so doing, my finger fell to a portion of St. Augustine's Confessions, in which he was told by the Lord to open a book at random. I was blown away. Then again, I got the same feeling to do it again. I thought to myself, surely not again. But I went ahead and opened another book at random. With this different book, my finger once more fell on a portion describing somebody connected to the Lord. I can't recall if the Lord told him to do it or not. Opening a book at random, and therefore receiving a message from God that way. Since these events happened, I have read all those books and more, and these were the only two books that described anything like that. I took that to mean the Lord was very pleased with me delving into the faith like that, and it just served to show me yet again His great power. 
So that's a very interesting experience. And while you could look at it different ways, you know, you could take a more skeptical approach or an approach that would accept it at face value. I don't have a basis for challenging it. God can, even though I can't say that's definitely what happened here. God can do things like that. And so it could be a genuine, supernatural, spiritual experience. What I can say is God doesn't do that regularly. And that's one of the reasons that Catholic theology, including Aquinas, has looked dimly on the open a book at random and expect to get a divine message out out of it form of sortilege. That's not reliable most of the time. It may be in some situations like where St. Augustine was told, Tali et lege, take and read. But it's not reliable most of the time, and so people should not attempt to do that under ordinary circumstances. Okay. All right, so that's uh, all our feedback on St. Thomas Aquinas. And before we move on to more feedback, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create this show, including Justin P., Aaron B., Margaret Q., Phil B., and Christopher R., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by Dr. Jimmy Turner, your guide to practical leadership at drjimmyturner.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. So our next bit of episode, uh, I'm sorry, our next bit of feedback comes from, uh, well, it comes from an epi- our epi- uh, the Thomas Aquinas and the Occult, but it was feedback on qualified immunity. Uh, and so Hans sent this via email. I'm writing to correct a misstatement of yours concerning qualified immunity. In episode 106, St. Thomas Aquinas and the Occult Part 2, you answered a question related to the previous episodes about the siege at Waco, Texas, in which you stated that qualified immunity prevented law enforcement officers, LEOs, from being prosecuted. This is not the case. Qualified immunity prevents LEOs and other executive branch officers, prosecutors of absolute immunity, who are acting under the authority of their office from being civilly sued by plaintiffs unless the LEO slash official clearly violated an established constitutional or statutory right at the time the action was taken. Back to criminal prosecutions. There are many instances where an LEO has been criminally charged for violating the law while performing a function of their duties. Sometimes the charges brought against the LEO are valid and sometimes not. Nevertheless, the number of times an LEO commits a criminal act is minuscule when compared to the number of police citizen encounters for a given time frame. So thank you very much, Hans. We had a number of people write in about qualified immunity, both for it and against it. And I'm, I know we're going to be talking about it more in the future, as well as other forms of immunity. I don't want to go too deep into it right now, but we will be covering it in the future. And you're correct that, that qualified immunity pertains to 
immunity in civil cases rather than criminal cases. I'm aware of that. When I said that it prevented them from being prosecutors, what I meant was being prosecuted in civil court. The word prosecute can be used for both criminal prosecutions and civil cases, but I recognize that it's more often in many people's minds associated with the criminal courts. And so I could have been clearer about that. So thank you. Uh, And then our next bit of feedback comes from the episodes on the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI. And the first one comes from Len, who wrote on Facebook, Wow, I'm so glad, Jimmy, that you took the time, a lot of time actually, to address the feedback people gave on anarchism. Your objective, well-thought-out, open, and honest take on things is why I love this show so much. Thanks, Lynn. We had a number of people write about anarchism and take exception to some of the things I'd said, and I welcome the opportunity to clarify and expand on things. And so we did take a few minutes to do that. And the same people who had originally made objections wrote back and said how much they appreciated us doing that. I really, you know, as I'm sure you can tell from the show, I really believe in listening to all sides and letting people make their points. And so in the mysterious feedback, I try to create a place for people who are expressing all different points of view or who are taking exception to things that we said here on the show, as long as they're being polite about it. Uh, We've had several instances of that already in this mysterious feedback special where people were taking different points of view or objecting to something, but they did so in a in a cordial and polite way. And I'm happy to entertain things like that. If nothing else, it gives me a chance to clarify. Kelly writes on Facebook, great episode. I love how it started when Jimmy was describing the condition of the nation in the early 70s. I was laughing at the overdose of sarcasm. The Missy clip was unexpected and awesome. This was a fascinating episode, but when I first saw the topic, I didn't think I'd be too interested. I was wrong. I can't wait to hear the next installment. I must say the production value of the show gets better each episode. I love the random clips, especially the Missy clips, and I love the sound effects used when Dom reads the letter that group sent after the burglary. It keeps the audience engaged. Thank you, Kelly. It's part of our continuing experimentation in finding ways to add additional interest and little neat elements to the show. Sergio wrote on Facebook, love the episode. I especially like the commentary by Missy. Yeah, and Missy, for people who may not be aware, is a character from the TV show Doctor Who. Missy is a female incarnation of the Doctor's arch nemesis, the Master. And since she's now, or in this incarnation, since she's a woman, she decided she couldn't keep calling herself the Master. So she decided to call herself the Mistress or Missy. And she is a chaotic character who is a lot of fun. And so, yeah, Missy is awesome. And you never know when she's going to show up. Oh, I aim to displease. Have I let you down? Have I let the Academy down? But most of all, have I let myself down? Actually, no. I have to say, I am giving myself an A-star. Devin Thompson writes on YouTube, Oh, this is already one of my favorite episodes. I was born in 1971. Does the fact that I've never heard of this indicate that Hoover's Bureau was largely able to recover undamaged from this incident? Very eager to hear next week's conclusion. Well, it took a it took a good bit of damage. There were hearings afterwards that were very painful for the FBI, and it, there was a much closer supervision of it thereafter. 
ultimately, though, lessons that get learned can be unlearned. And, you know, that could result in things like the Waco siege or Ruby Ridge. So it's, it, you know, as they say, constant vigilance is the price of freedom. Yes. VB Mom on YouTube writes, we know today that the FBI and probably most government agencies are corrupt beyond our imagination. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, and I don't comment a lot on recent political stuff, especially on this show, in part because it's just so new that history hasn't had a chance to sort things out and solve mysteries. But, you know, there is this concept of the deep state that you have these people who are in permanent jobs who are not elected and it's there largely for career. And sometimes they resist doing what the leaders of the moment of whatever party want them to do. And they may even actively seek to undermine government policy and sometimes maybe do illegal things. And I was recently reading an article and it was it wasn't flagged as an opinion piece. It was flagged as just straightforward news. And this shows you the degree of partisanship in our press today. But the author was talking about the fact free theory of the deep state. And it's like, I think there's some historical facts you may want to be aware of. Right. Uh, Let's look at Hoover's FBI and how it intimidated even presidents. And everybody acknowledges, all the historians acknowledge that today. That is not a controversial thing. Government agencies have power. And to quote another old saying, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. At least that's one version of the saying. And so we do really do have to constantly be vigilant because if you have power, there's a temptation to abuse it. Brooke Kennel writes on YouTube, oh, the story of Gene Seberg's baby really got to me. Poor woman. What a horrible, horrible tragedy. I wish this story was more surprising than it actually was, but it seems that no matter which party is in power at the moment, governmental shadiness continues. I remember in one of my undergraduate classes having an intense discussion of the role of espionage in modern society and whether it was really justifiable. There are so many gray areas and so many ways of becoming morally compromised. Just take what the commissioners did. The burglary itself may have been justifiable. But it involved lying as well. And as Jimmy pointed out, the morality of lying in that situation is a fuzzy issue. I'm sure many people in the FBI thought they were doing the right thing as well. But look at all the nefarious things they did in the service of the greater good. And you're right, Brooke, the degree of espionage in society is a tricky issue because the police do need to be able to look into criminal activity. And sometimes that means and that means watching the criminals. Uh, So there's always a question of what means are legitimate and what are not legitimate. Then there's the flip side. If all of the attention is focused outside of the government, who to give another saying, who watches the watchmen? You know, there needs to be there needs to be some surveillance going both ways. There needs to be civilian oversight of government activity as well. Derelict Signal on YouTube writes, thanks for the episode, Jimmy. Young 20 something here who really enjoys getting a bunch of new content that's separate from all the crazy of the modern world. I think this episode was eye opening. I will say, though, that I can't really get behind the rallying around the peace movement since I have to disagree almost wholeheartedly with their cause essentially acting as a fifth column for the communist guerrillas worldwide. I imagine I probably would have been on their side then, but there we're Catholics on both sides. And were I to to change the label to peace protesters during World War II, these peace protesters would have had a much different taste. 
Really, though, the horror the U.S., NATO, and other allies committed were egregious and doesn't justify their actions to stop evil ideologies like communism slash fascism. And it's it's true that it's very hard to say what attitudes one would have taken had one been raised in the past. I can say with confidence what I would what I would think of things in the past in many cases if I had my current principles. But if I'd been raised differently, I might have taken different attitudes towards things. And that's true of anybody. One of the things I pointed out on or I know I've mentioned it to you, Dom, but and it's come up a little bit on Secrets of Doctor Who is if you're a time traveler, if you're going to travel through time, you kind of have to roll with things. You can't. It's like going to another country. If you go to another country and they have different ways, you can't just sneer at everybody. You know, right. they they may not be your ways, but you can't just sneer at everybody. You have to kind of roll with things. And the same thing is would be true of visiting different times. And so I always believe in, in trying to take a charitable interpretation of things. And I feel a little bit like a time traveler. This is what I was mentioning to you, Dom, looking at these different time periods, like when we looked at you know, 1971 or when we looked at World War Two and the Japanese coup and or, and things like that. And I try to, especially in the background segments of the show, just describe what happened in a neutral way. I may occasionally just for clarity say, hey, by the way, I don't approve of this. But for the most part, I try to just be neutral, especially in the background segments. And then I save the moral evaluation for the faith segment. And one consequence of that is people should not look to the background segments for my opinions on things most of the time. Just because we're doing something doesn't mean I agree with it. In the case of the Vietnam War, to be frank, I haven't studied it enough to know what side I would have been on given my principles that I have now. You know, not all wars are just. Some wars are, some wars aren't. Some wars start as just and then become unjust or vice versa. And I don't know the history of the Vietnam War. I mean, I was like, you know, I I was less than 10 years old when it ended. And so and I haven't gone back and done all of the research I would want to to form a mature opinion on it. So that's one of the reasons in the in the FBI break in things. I said, no matter what else you think of these people. Because I I acknowledge you could take different attitudes towards whether what the commissioners, you know, were they justified or not, or what, you know, do you like the Vietnam era peace movement or not? They did expose illegal activity by the FBI. And so that was the focus, not the was the peace movement justified. And I actually find it interesting when I read and rather refreshing when I read history books and the historian is just telling me in a straightforward way, here's what happened. Mm-hmm. Without, you know, without passing judgment, like in the Japanese coup stuff, if you read the fall of Japan. Now, I would have been, especially with my current values, I would have been very much on America's side in that. But I find it interesting and it, it, to just relate what the coup plotters tried to do and why they did it. Uh, and this is another aspect of if you really want to understand history, as opposed to just signal how virtuous you are. You have to kind of get inside people's heads and say, "Okay, why did they do this? What were they? You know, what was motivating them? How did they how how can this be understood from the perspective of why would a reasonable human being try to do this? 
And that kind of charitable interpretation is necessary to have a genuine understanding of why somebody does what they do, even if you disagree with what they do. Right. As opposed to you disagree with me, therefore you're a monster. Yeah. (laughs) Brendan writes on Patreon, where he's a patron, says a great episode. The one point I'm not sure really plays out, though, is the justification for the burglary based on it being unreasonable to protect evidence of illegal activities. The problem I see there is while the people involved suspected illegal activity and suspected the files would have evidence of it, they couldn't have and didn't know that to be the case before breaking and entering and then searching the files. We can't justify an action based on the end result. That would be too close to consequentialism. And we can't justify objectively wrong actions because of good intentions. At the point the moral decision was made, they seemed to be simply in a position of deciding to break in and rob a federal office. Jimmy brought up how law enforcement takes evidence, but law enforcement is also at least supposed to be held to a bunch of standards for doing this and are not properly permitted to just take anything, even anything they think might be relevant. Apart from an active crime scene, they are explicitly prohibited from just breaking and entering a building to look for evidence without having a warrant signed by a hopefully impartial judge and who hopefully considered whether there was enough evidence to support a search and specifying exactly what the search is looking for and where. That may be a legal principle rather than natural law, but it's not in contradiction with natural law as far as I can tell either. Further, there is a matter of a difference between what those vested with authority investigate a crime may do and what those without authority may do, as even the apostles and church fathers seem to indicate with respect to authority, which I don't think was fully addressed. And we certainly could have gone into more depth on some of the points that Brendan raises. In terms of the establishing the moral character of the act, the Citizens Commission did reveal evidence of extensive illegal activity by the FBI. And so objectively, what they did was justified. There was evidence there. They did bring it to light. And so objectively, that aspect of what they did was fine. Now, there can be questions about, well, did they use proper means in all cases? But the overall exposure of this information, that's objectively justified. That's a separate question than did they have sufficient evidence to act on their suspicions? And that's a question where you could have different opinions and say, you know, I don't think they had enough evidence to justify their suspicions. They acted rashly. That's I'm perfectly happy to entertain that. Personally, though, I, and especially in the episode, couldn't I don't have enough evidence about what evidence they had to know whether they would have had subjective justification for the act, morally speaking. I could see it going either way, and if I can see something going either way, I tend to just not pass judgment on it. So I acknowledge that maybe they had enough evidence for their suspicions that they were justified in acting, but maybe they weren't and they just got lucky. So I acknowledge that both of those are legitimate viewpoints. In terms of law enforcement officers see not being able to seize everything, it's true that under ordinary circumstances, you know, you do need a search warrant unless you have probable cause in an exigent circumstance that's just emerging and you need to act now or you're going to lose the opportunity. And that's true. That presupposes also the 
established rule of law that the courts will implement the procedures that need to be taken to deal with the situation and and that they're able to do so in a timely manner. And this relates to the other to another point that Brendan made, which was that there is a difference between what those vested with public authority do and those things that private individuals can do. And ordinarily, private individuals cannot take on functions that are normally performed by the state. But if the state is negligent or incompetent or malfeasant, then it becomes possible for citizens to take matters into their own hands. If the police are negligent or delinquent or whatever in protecting your, you from physical danger, you can defend yourself. If there it, it has it's sometimes said, when seconds count, the cops are only minutes away. <laughs> and so there are situations where people need to do things because the state is not capable of acting in a timely or efficient or competent manner. And in this case, that applied to the FBI. The government was not capable of investigating the FBI, there was no judge that was going to approve a search warrant of the FBI's files. And so, in principle, the condition was met for somebody needs to take action here. Now, you could say, are these the right people? Did they do it in the right way? But in this kind of situation where the state is incompetent or negligent or malfeasant, citizens can do things like this, even though it's not normally within their authority to do so. In terms of the fact they just went in and seized all the files, well, actually, law enforcement officers will do that, too. Whether they have a warrant or whether they view it as an emergency circumstance they need to act on and they have probable cause, if they think you have documents that are going to show evidence of crime, they will come in and take all of your documents because they don't know which ones are going to have the evidence of the crime and which ones aren't. So they will come into your house and take all of your hard drives and all your paper files and everything like that if they think that they may contain evidence of crime. And so that's essentially what the commissioners did. Lenny writes on Patreon, I enjoyed both parts of this episode. One issue that could be worth thinking about. In such cases, folks like the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI believe they have met what might be called a St. Thomas More moment, that is, a moment where all, or almost all, must be sacrificed for the greater good. The thing is, such moments are incredibly rare in the lives of most individuals. I think most of us should guard against seeing this situation as arising too often. I remember well how St. Thomas wanted to know the exact wording of the Oath of Allegiance to the Act of Succession to see whether he could legitimately take it. I think this aspect became explicit when Jimmy mentioned the moral problems with risking jail when some of the commissioners still had young children. And I agree with Lenny. People can get a hero complex either on the small or the large scale and convince themselves that, oh, this is one of those moments where somebody has to act and it must be me. And uh, that's so uh, if you're if you're feeling that way, this is a really good moment for a sanity check yeah. and say, is this actually the case? Is the world going to end if I personally don't do something here? Or maybe there's another way to look at this. And it's very easy for people to, in out of good motives, 
to convince themselves that this is the time that we must act and I must be the one to do it, when in fact, both of those may be questionable. Okay. So that about uh, wraps it up for the feedback for this special Mysterious Feedback episode. Uh, Jimmy, what further resources could we have related to the feedback that people gave? So we'll have a link to my book, Teaching with Authority. Also, Michael Brooks's book, 13 Things That Don't Make Sense, which has the discussion of homeopathy in it. The book Meditations on the Tarot and also Stratford Caldicott's article on von Balthasar and Meditations on the Tarot. And it's good to check out his analysis before you buy the book, just so you know what you're getting. We also will have a link to Heather C.'s fan art with the Amigurumi Jimmy, which is awesome, and uh, Jaime Longa's fan art, his uh, pen and ink sketch, which is also awesome. We'll have links to uh, what Amigurumi is, so you can read more about that. Also, we'll have a couple of links to articles on probabilism and the other different moral theology viewpoints about analyzing risk and the morality of assuming risk. And then uh, we'll have a link to Missy Series 1, which is a set of audio plays by Big Finish featuring Missy that has the clips that we used in the 1971 burglary story. So uh, you can hear them in their original context. And then we'll also have a link to the newly released Missy Series 2, which has the Missy clip that we used in this episode. Excellent. So that's it from us. Uh, so what are your theories about the shows and ideas that were discussed today and the feedback? If you have more feedback on feedback, you can let us know online by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page or sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Uh, be sure to check out the Mysterious World Bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in all of the episodes of the show. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? This Friday, since this was a bonus episode, we're going to have a Friday one as well. And we'll be looking at Ingo Swan's book, Penetration, which involves a story about using remote viewing to explore secret alien bases on the moon. Oh, wow. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>